This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us for worship Sundays at 10 a.m. Visit us online at holytrinityrec.org. Find us on Facebook as Holy Trinity Houston, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram as Holy Trinity REC. Enjoy the sermon. Our sermon this morning comes from our epistle reading, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. So for any of us who've been in Houston for any amount of time, you know that about a mile or two away from us is a bridge. And this bridge has a rather long, has a rather large message for the people who come into the town. The message is, be someone. And we've noticed that this has made the news recent months because someone's either erased it or they're painting over it. In fact, there's even been this drive to try to get it declared as a national landmark. So this, I guess, is a very important message for the people of Houston. But, you know, there's something very interesting about that message. There's a certain urgency. It's a, an action that this message or the messenger wants to promote. It's for you to be someone to do something, to be a person of worth. And this is a message that we get not only on a bridge coming in from the north down 45 to the city of Houston, but we hear it at work, we hear it from family members, we maybe even hear it from the church, this need to be a person of significance, a person who makes a difference. And with this message, it can spur all kinds of actions or inactions, some of them good, some of them not so good. can spur a person who doesn't have a goal or who doesn't have a way in life. It could possibly and very possibly give them an impetus to go out and find out what they want to do with themselves in life. But it can also be a source of sin. Uh, the idea of trying to be someone or being important could try to, would consume you. Uh, work becomes not just a thing to get money to live and to get enjoyment out of, but it then becomes an all-consuming passion in order to get a name. You could also say that even in social circles, the idea of being someone means throwing the biggest party or having um, the biggest cause to donate to, which would cause you to be known and be someone. This even finds its way into the church. We see people who may want to become an elder or become uh, a person in the government of the church just so to be someone, to be known, rather than to serve. It's this idea of the urgent becoming, overtaking the important. 
And this is something that Paul had to deal with in the Corinthian church. You know, when you read the letters that he wrote to the Corinthians, they sound like a really really big bunch of misfits. But when we kind of chuckle at that, I think we also realize that some of these issues that they have are the exact same issues that we have. Hence, that's why why it's in the Bible. But Paul has to deal with this problem of people basically trying to rank themselves in the family of God. Uh, He has to take them to task, for instance, with the Lord's Supper. He says, there's some of you that come in here and you get drunk. There's some of you who don't have anything. And the people who have everything are actually making a mockery of the sacrament. And he has to call them back into account about what it is about the Lord's Supper that makes it so special. He then has to tackle the issue of spiritual gifts. Apparently, in the church, there are are some folks who are kind of flaunting whatever talent or whatever gifting that the Spirit had given them and kind of holding it over the heads of other people who weren't so obviously important, quote-unquote. And then... Paul has to get into this explanation that not everyone gets to speak in tongues. Not everyone gets to be a prophet. Not everyone gets to foretell the future. Uh, As he puts it, he kind of makes this metaphor of a body. And he says not everyone can be an ear. Not everyone can be an eye. Uh, Some are a little more in need of humility than others. It's this idea that we're all in this together and that God... In his wisdom and in his forbearance has given us each and every person some gift, some ability, some inclination to add to the betterment of the others in the body of Christ. And then as he comes off of that rather lengthy explanation, he talks about, I will show you a still more excellent way. So... In this statement, he's basically saying that while this was an important subject to talk about, this isn't the thing that you should be putting your minds toward every day and night, whether or not you have a certain gift or whether or not you can get a certain gift or why didn't I get that certain gift. And then he talks about this thing called love. Chapter 13, of course, we know the world round, both within the church and even outside of the church, is known as the chapter of love. And Paul begins this description of what love is. You can basically break it into three sections. And the first couple verses, he talks about what you can do but still not have love. He talks about, for instance, having the tongues of men or even the tongues of angels. But if he has no love, this person just makes a lot of noise. He says, if, this, if you have prophetic powers or if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith, and so much so as to move mountains, but I don't have love to go with that, it makes no difference. I am nothing he would say. 
If I even give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So here Paul is trying to impress upon the Corinthians that your status, your abilities, don't mean spit without love. And when he talks about love in this venue, he's talking about, I would argue, the idea that you're looking out for the better, betterment or for the, the best for the other person. It's the idea that you're not in it any relationship just for yourself. You're in it because you care about the person that you focused on. And then in the second part of this, the second part of the, the chapter, he then goes into this description of what love is and what love isn't. He'll talk about love being patient and kind. Uh, And then he talks about it not being envious. He talks about it being uh, not insisting on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not angry. It's something that doesn't rejoice at doing wrong or at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. And then it says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And when you look at all of these descriptions between the do's and the do-nots, you discover that love is described as an action. It's described as either doing something or not doing something. (coughs) In fact, if you can go back about 20 or 30 years, there's this Christian group called DC Talk, and they came out with actually probably one of their better known um, tracks, and the first title that they had on that track was Love is a Verb, Um, and it's actually a pretty good song, but the idea is, is that as these guys are pointing out when they're singing it, it's shows up as a verb in the dictionary, and it's something that you do. And it's a message a lot of times that's lost on society at large, especially when you look at the television and you see the people of importance constantly getting married and divorced and having affairs, and it seems like everyone's so interested in that that they... And yet at the same time, these very same people are telling us that love is important. But they forget that love is a little bit more than the thing that gives you the warm fuzzies inside when you get up in the morning. It's something that you're looking out for the other person and that you're both committed in this relationship of love. And it goes beyond even the marriage relationship, even though that is probably the one basic area where you see love exercised day in and day out. It's a microcosm for what's supposed to be going on in the church as a whole. And as Paul points out in Ephesians, it's even emblematic of God's love, ultimate love for the church, and that Christ is seen as the husband or the bridegroom laying down his life for the betterment of his bride. This is the idea that love is trying, Paul is trying to get across to his people, and that, look, your gifts, unless they're being used in this attitude, don't mean a thing. And you're as good as dead. 
But as we look at the last section, and this is really what I wanted to emphasize today, in verses 8 through 13, Paul starts off with a very simple statement. He says, love never ends. And now we could, again, get fixated on this and kind of get feelings of romance or whatever up in your, you know, in your, in your imagination. And I guess there's some room for that, but Paul isn't necessarily talking about that. He's talking about the fact that love is an eternal thing. And he goes through throughout this paragraph and he talks about the temporary nature of everything else that the Corinthians were getting involved in and what they were fussing over. He starts off by saying for prophecies, for instance, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they're going to cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, he doesn't tell us why yet, but he just basically says, look, these things are meant as tools for the church. Prophecies, they're meant to foretell the future. They're also meant to exhort the church. People with that gift are supposed to go forth and teach the people what God says. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, a lot of what the prophets did was not telling the future. It was basically telling the people to stop being a bunch of ninnies and listen to God and work by his commandments. That's what he's saying. That was their main message. Then he goes on to say the same thing about knowledge. He says knowledge isn't going to be around forever either. And I think he's talking about scriptural knowledge. As important as that is, as we read in other parts of scripture, knowledge is something that can puff up if not used correctly and used with the attitude of love. And then he says that passes away as well. <clears throat> Same thing with tongues. Now, depending on your background, we, you can, you know, we can have a bit of a debate about what he means here. Our Pentecostal brethren, actually, you know, as we all understand them, understand it as being a supernatural language. Uh, others will say that it's the ability to speak multiple languages that's given by God to help further the cause of the gospel. And he says even that's going to go away at some point in time. And then he says something else that's very interesting. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now that's an interesting statement. What does he mean by the perfect? The perfect coming. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. One, they think, some scholars will think, Paul is talking about the closing of the canon of the Bible. And the biblical basis for that comes out of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author tells us that long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This was a verse that was used by the early church to basically refute what they called enthusiasts, people who constantly ran around saying that they always had a word from God and that they had something important to tell people. 
And this verse served as ammunition, sort of, to say that, look, God sent his ultimate revelation in Christ. There is no other word that needs to be said. He gave the ultimate to us. And it's because of that a lot of scholars are saying that the perfect here is is that Christ's testimony both in the Gospels and in the epistles of the Bible form the complete revelation of God. So therefore prophecy is no longer needed and neither is some you know any of the others that we have it completely here. But the text also seems to lean a little bit towards this other interpretation, which is the second coming of Christ. It's the perfect coming down for his bride. The fact that Jesus will be reunited with his people and all the other gifts that are used to encourage and exhort us as the church are no longer needed. Goes on to tell us that as he goes on to explain what this is, he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. It sounds like a lot like the, the church. In a lot of ways, it's a child. It stumbles, it falls, it poops in its pants. It does a lot of things that you'd never expect it to do. We are weird. We tend to go off track. We tend to do what children do. And Paul says that when he was a child, he did these same things. But he says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And that, as we read on and as it makes it more clear, I think he's, what he's trying to tell us is, is that when he achieves what he would call true manhood is when Christ returns. And that all of the fumbling and the bumbling and the, the messiness that we experience in day-to-day life goes away because we behold Christ as who he truly is and we become formed to his image. Verse 12, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. We have history behind us. We know what Christ did for our salvation. But something is still yet to come that we can't really imagine in our mind's eye. He says, One time in the future we'll then see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So this could sound a little dangerous, but I think what he's saying is God being who he is, Jesus being who he is, there's a whole lot that we still don't know about either. This isn't to say that the Bible is incomplete in what its intention is for, which is to show people who God is and who they are. But there's this idea that even as we say in our own liturgy, there's this continual growth and knowledge in the love and grace of God through Christ. I think this is what he's getting at. When Christ finally returns, we'll be fully known or we have been fully known by God now, but then we will see God in a new light. We'll see him with unvarnished eyes. Love in all its perfection, comes down in the person of Jesus and for once will see true love 
and what it's supposed to be. And then as you go and you look through the prophecies, like in the back of Revelation, in the last chapter, the idea that we, a, a harmony that was never there since the fall has come back. And that we truly start focusing on God and who he is. And by that, we see each other and through the eyes of true love as well. And as he finishes out, he says in a well-known verse, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. In the present time, we need all three. We need faith. We need hope. This is why we have communion, for instance. It gives us hope. He will say earlier in chapter 11 on the Lord's Supper that the Lord's Supper is meant to remind us not only of what Christ did, but that he is coming back again. Faith being the same way. I remember once I read about this seminary professor who took a coin, hid it in his hand, and he told the people, do you believe that I have a coin in my hand? And people on the other end would say yes or no. And he says, for those of you who said yes, let me destroy your faith. And he opens up his hand with the coin in it. Faith will not be needed when Christ returns because we'll see him. Everything that we've hoped for, that we've put our trust in, is right in front of us. But he says love is the greatest of these. And that's the thing that doesn't end. That is what is eternal. When we think of love, let's think about what's important. Not only in our lives, but in the church, of which it is a part. Yes, it's nice to be known, but it's more important to stick to what's important, and that is love, the betterment for the, those who you love, whether it's your family, your friends, or your church. The urgent cries out, what do I get out of this? Love cries out, what is best for the other person? In Christ, we see that at its ultimate fulfillment when he came, and that he died for a people that were in a state of rebellion against him. And it was not that we loved first, but that he loved us, that we became children of God. And that is the type of love that we're supposed to show the world, not only in our day-to-day -day actions with each other and those in who we come in contact with, but also in sharing the gospel and what Christ has done. Amen.